Uh, let us pray and we'll ask God to speak to us. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us. That the big story is that of all the millions of things that are here, um, whether by default or by distraction, the big story is that you are here. And we ask you, Lord, that you make every part of our mind, our soul, um, converge upon your hearness rather than the hearness of other things. We ask you that you'll be more present to us than anything else. Come, O oh Lord. We thank you you are here now and you are preparing us for the future as well. And so we ask you that even now you would free us up and you would speak to us in such a way that every single one of us will have felt that we have been spoken to by you and that we, they heard that we heard your voice individually, even as you speak to us corporately. And so we commit this time into your hands. We recognize that we're going into this space where we are more, perhaps more conscious of your speaking. So we ask you that you will cause us to have no misunderstanding, no um, uh, distraction as we hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we've been looking at um, this period of Israel's history in which uh, during the time of Hezekiah, who was a rather good king, was actually a really good king, a very smart king, um, there was arising from the east the empire of the Assyrians and then resident to the, sorry, yes, and resident on the west, southwest side was Egypt, which was the, the, the dominating culture and dominating power at that time. And, in, uh, and we spoke about how Hezekiah, in, uh, in wanting to play off Egypt against uh, uh, Assyria, caused an alliance to be made with Egypt. And Isaiah is constantly badgering and speaking to Hezekiah. And he's saying, do not rely on Egypt. Do not make an alliance with Egypt, because if you do that, you will lose your distinct identity with God, and Egypt will impose itself upon you. And we saw in Isaiah chapter 36 that moment in which Reb Shakeh, the ambassador, or the emissary of, um, of uh, King Sennacherib, um, come right up to the gates of Jerusalem, having uh, completely devastated the cities, 12, 12 cities before that, and come, to, and come to Jerusalem and was at the gate. And we noticed that when he came to the gate, he actually spewed all the, the, the propaganda and the threats and the voices of Assyria and Sennacherib upon all the people in Jerusalem. Yeah? He did not, he was not... Uh, 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 dis discretion didn't he was not discreet in about it. In fact, the people who are the who are the guardians of Jerusalem said, "Speak to us in Aramaic, the international lingo franca. Don't speak to us in 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 Hebrew." I said, "No, I'm speaking here to influence everybody. That is my aim. What I want is world domination. I want to control everything. I'm not." here to just speak to certain select ones. I want to control the minds and the hearts and the souls of everybody 
in Jerusalem. And in some ways, we are living in that era. It's in an era that is parallel to it. That's very, it, just, it just makes us think about that, doesn't it? And uh, we spoke about the fact that idols have a way of opening up the way for greater oppression. Idols are such that, uh, you know, we saw in Psalm 135, those who worship them become like them. They have no ears to hear. They have ears, but, no, but they don't hear. They have eyes that don't see. They have mouths that don't speak. Breath that's not even there. Or they don't have breath. <laughs> and, and, uh, and the psalmist says, all those who worship them become like that. And we spoke about the fact that idols are ways and strategies by which we avoid shame, that we gain safety, and we use idols to do that. And we spoke about the fact that idols make us shallow because they're like plated gold and plated silver. Remember that? Yeah, remember that? Okay, so I've just given you the past, past few weeks' sermons sort of in a nutshell in, in terms of idols, yeah? And I want to go a little further because what God does do is that He sharpens the, His, uh, his uh, imprecatory uh, uh, um, speech against idols, but at the same time, He opens up a way for us as well. And so let's, let's go ahead and read Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. We can look a little bit more about how these things can come about in our lives and how God provides a solution. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit. Yeah? In order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh. Because see, everybody's looking for safety. We are living in an age of anxiety, according to W.H. Auden, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame. The very shame that you are avoiding will become yours. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt your humiliation. For the princes of are at Zoan, and the ambassadors arrive at Hanes. Everyone will be ashamed because of people who cannot profit them who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. The very thing that you're running away from or you're, you're needing healing from, you are going to actually be saddled with. And later on, God shows a way in which this shame can be uh, healed. The oracle concerning beasts of the Negev through a land of distress and anguish, from whence come lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on camel humps to people who cannot profit them, even Egypt whose health is vain and empty and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who has been exterminated or who has been rendered to be a nothing. Now go, write it on the tablet before them and inscribe it on the soul that it may serve for the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, Sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. 
Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Lord of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, sorry, since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them or made an alliance with them as well, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall. A bulge in a high wall. You know what a bulge in a high wall is? It's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a wall that has not been constructed correctly. And it's top-heavy. It's top-heavy. There's no proper foundation. The wall is not based on a proper foundation. It has a breach because of it. Maybe its materials were, were, were actually put together wrongly. But what happens is that the bulge, there's a bulge in the high wall. The wall is being built, but it has a bulge in it. And what uh, Isaiah was basically saying is this. Your state is like a bulge in a high wall. You've built it high, but the higher you built it, the, bu- the bulge becomes more dangerous. Yeah, you become more dangerous because the foundations are wrong. You want to add material, add good things to it, but the more you add, the more material you add to it, the bigger the bulge becomes because it's not balanced. Okay, it's the wrong stuff. It's, it's, it's top heavy, right? It's top heavy. And what you are doing is that you're trying to build and add good things to this wall, add material to this wall, but the material is so unbalanced, so out of balance, out of kilter, that actually is adding pressure upon the wall to fall over. Yeah? And I want to talk about this bulge in the wall uh, today, uh, even as we come to the Lord's solution to this bulge in the wall. Anyway, let's carry on. Whose collapse is like a smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a shirt will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. That's utter devastation. For thus says the Lord God of hosts, one of Israel, he says, in repentance and rest you will be saved. So this is the first time God shows a sign of hope. But this hope is not actually taken. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you are not willing. You were not willing and you said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee, and we will f- ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. It's almost as if, if you rely on idols, the very reliance on idols will further, the very, further, you, further you into, thrust you into the very thing that you're running from. The very thing that you're trying to use idols as a strategy to actually avoid will be the very thing that is going to happen, happen to you. And you wonder, how is that happen? How does that actually take place? How is it that our strategies for avoidance of unsafety or for avoidance of shame can actually drive us further into shame? Yeah? And uh, it's very intriguing when you re- read Isaiah chapter 30. God gives us full, it's, it's full of answers. Yeah? 1,000 verse 17 will flee at the threat of one man and you will flee at the threat of five until you, left, you are left as a flag on a mountaintop as a signal on the hill. And therefore, and here's the solution, the Lord longs to be gracious to you and therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for Him or who wait for Him. O people of Zion, Inhabitants in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, 
He, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher, and your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left, and you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold. We've spoken about that last week. And you will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, Be gone! And then he will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground and it will be rich and plenteous on that day when you live, your livestock will graze in roomy pasture. Verse 25, On every lofty mountain and on every high hill there will be a streams running with water on the, on the day of the great slaughter. You can see there's an alternate life. There's an alternate world that the Lord offers the people of Israel. It's so opposite in the, in, in the way in which it works and the way in which it runs. One is a world that is uh, bound by the strategies for avoiding shame, avoiding uh, uh, unsafety, the world of idols. And what God was showing through Isaiah is this. This world of idols has a certain rushing of it. There's a certain drivenness about, about it. There's a certain way in which you're, it's, it's burdensome. It's, it's a hard world. Sometimes we look to things to make life easier, but it's really hard when you have idols. And he, and he talks about the fact that they are carrying their idols across the Negev, which is a very, very, very dangerous place. It's not like any other kind of wilderness. It's the, de- the Negev is a, is, a, is a dangerous desert full of scorpions, full of lions, full of, of wild animals. And he says, you're taking this, and you're taking this to Egypt because it's going to cost you to have these uh, idols. It's going to cost you to actually depend upon things outside of me for your safety and and for your avoidance of shame. And what God is saying is this, you are driven. There's a drivenness that's in you that you thought would actually give you power. And what God was basically saying is this, you look at your life, you are rushing. You're so rushing that you cannot hear the word of the Lord. You cannot hear what God has to say. You can only hear it in relation to the thing that you're grabbing at. You can only hear smooth things that God says as long as those things are according to the agenda that you are hoping for yourself. And what God is saying is this, you have to repent, you know, turn, turn, change the direction and, and rest. And so I believe that this is something that, that the Lord has for us during this Lenten period. Um, I believe that God wants to speak to us in such a way that we will be free. But in order for us to understand this, it's important for us to understand how these, these idols come about. And at the risk of being repetitive uh, from the last few Sundays, I want to remind you I spoke about two views of history, two views of the universe that I had uh, use two special words for, and I'll just put it up just so you can remember, two different ways of thinking about the world. There's mimesis, in which, in mimesis, um, we regard the world as having a given order and a given meaning, and the meaning and purpose are discovered and conformed to by an individual. Okay, we spoke about mimesis, and uh, there's a way in which we can be looking the world in a mimetic way, in which we're saying, I need to fit into the world. I need to conform to the way in which God intended for the world to be. 
and, for, and I have to find my meaning in life. I find my purpose in life with regard to the world. For us, for Christians, we, t- we say we are seeking for God's purpose for us in the world. And we realize that it is we that conform to the world. A farmer will conform to the world, to nature, in the same way that we want to conform to nature as well as to God. Yeah? Amen? If you believe in a religion in which everything is crazy and magical and God's constantly trumping the, 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 the order of the universe, you're not actually thinking about Christianity. You're thinking about magic. Sometimes as Christians, we can be even in the charismatic side of things, thinking God's always kind of ups, ups, putting upside down, trumping upside, uh, upside down the order of nature. And that is actually not a very biblical view of things. And sometimes we can come into Christianity and we say, we want God to do that stuff for us. We want miracles to happen. But what we mean by miracles is God up, turning upside down nature in favor of our own prosperity in favor of our own happiness. Does that make sense? We treat nature in the same way we treat God. We're constantly abusing it. Right? We're making use of God and all that. And strictly speaking, um, and we think in terms of the theology of miracles, a miracle is something that's an external intervention into nature. These things are rare. Okay, they are rare. But there's another word that we, in which we see God work, and that word is providence, in which God actually works within the structures of, of nature, but He times things in such a way that amazing things happen. Does that make sense? So, so technically, I hope you don't mind me kind of explaining this. It'll help us in the future. I, I, trust me, I believe, believe it will. So when you look and think about the, 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 the nation of Israel going around the walls of Jericho, okay, technically that's not a miracle when the, when the walls fell down because Jericho is in the Great Rift Valley, right? The most unstable area in the, in the, in, on earth. And so what happened is that as they did that, there was an earthquake. Does that make sense? Woo! God, didn't make, did, God did not make the walls fall down in and of themselves, and the earth was stable. The earth actually had the earthquakes that they usually have. But God timed it providentially. Does that make sense? I have found that in my own life, many times I needed money, and in prayer, God supplied through a person or some other, some, some other uh, uh, means from the point of view of that person, a very natural process took place to, to gift me with that money. So that person acted within nature. To me, the timing was amazing. I remember how a lot of times uh, when I was in full-time ministry and I did not have a salary and I had to go to certain places and do ministry, the, the church did not provide me with, with, with the means to actually do that or to, to speak in this, in, in this conference. And somebody would come and cross the road just at the time when I needed to pay my, my, uh, my, uh, my, my camp fees. And there it was. That is not technically a miracle, although I will say it was, it was a miracle. It's technically a providence. Does that make sense? I'm sorry, I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want to say that there are no miracles. No, there are, we, we use the term miracles, but theologically, in, in, in the technicality of it, 
It's the providence of God. It's the work of God. It's God broke in, but He worked within nature. Does that make sense? Okay. That will actually help us as, as, we, as, we, as, we, as we continue in the, in the years to come when we are talking with one another. But there's a way in which poesis is the idea that the world is a raw material out of which meaning and purpose is created by the individual. Because as technology burgeons and in, develops and increases, we begin to find that diseases, no longer diseases that used to kill us very easily, just dispatch us, are now overcome by medicine. They're overcome by technology, overcome by advances in our learning. In fact, space and time can actually even be overcome by these things. I can go to Michigan in four hours. If I have to walk or if I had to go the same way as people uh, hundreds of years ago had to, do, had to do it, it would take me, I don't know, months, weeks, I don't know. Distance has been changed. Space-time has been changed, right? It is not difficult for us to imagine that we can transcend ourselves. It's not difficult for us to imagine that we don't need God to, re, to, 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 to configure us and to limit us and to define us. We can define ourselves. I was just listen, reading something in the, in, the, in the Sydney Herald. It says, don't affirm your religion or, or don't affirm your faith. Evolve it. The whole idea is that we can make it. We can make it ourselves. We can become who we want to be. We can name ourselves. Nature or science doesn't have any control over who we are. We can decide what our identity is. Does that make sense? That comes from a poetic kind of view of, of nature in which we believe that we are the ones who are the arbiters of what is right and wrong. We are the ones who are the arbiters of who we are. Man is the measure. Yeah? And so in that kind of environment, when we say that man is the measure, we begin to realize that that idol has a way of expanding its power over us. Because if you say that you are the one who name your own identity, name your own gender, name your own sexuality, name your own uh, whoever you are, you know, that you do you, then what happens is that you can, you can start saying it, this is true regardless of God. The thing about that kind of way of thinking is that Anyone who thinks other than that becomes an oppressor. Anyone who thinks that you cannot actually name your own gender or you cannot name your own sexuality or name your own identity or name your own, or your own age, if anyone who says that, that person becomes a, 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 a person who goes against your particular rights. And what happens is this, we have tremendous uh, confusion and tremendous uh, conflict now that's taking place, even in public schools with respect to sex education and all that, because there is underlying the freedoms that we so desire for ourselves, underlying it is a, a way in which man has come of age. We can tell ourselves what we are and who we are, and we can become the God of ourselves. 
But this kind of freedom is a freedom to become anything we want to be. It's not a freedom to become what God wants us to be in, his, in the freedom and the liberty of the, of the Christian, but the freedom to be able to have choices to be able to do whatever we want. Underlying so much of what's happening, what happened in the French Revolution was an atheism in which God was thrown out and humankind proceeded from himself or herself and said, I am the measure of all things. And because I'm the measure of all things, anyone who is actually coming against that is actually a person from the, uh, the ancien regime, that is the, 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 the t- traditional oppressive kind of thing. Now, I want to put it to you that we are not traditional, but we seek to be godly. But there is a freedom in that that God gives to us. But there is something, something that is happening in our world today that is becoming a sea change in terms of even the most basic things in life, in terms of our own self-identification, and in terms of what's even right and wrong as a result of that. It's almost as if the empire, with its untrammeled passion to control everything, desires to control your mind, my mind, your children, and my children as well. And we are living in a situation in which parents do not have the same kind of authority over children as they used to. Not that I'm for tradition. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not a traditionalist. Tradition should always be questioned in, in, the, in, the, in the face of God. But we are now in a situation in which I would say to parents, keep your children close to yourself. A foundation is really important because in our desire to have more and more freedoms, more and more sophisticated freedoms, we are like a wall that's beginning to bulge because of the fact that our freedom is meant to take us out of oppression, good, but to put us in a different ground. The ground is the ground of autonomy in which we become poetic, not mimetic, not godly. The freedom is to take us out of oppression, of deprivation, take us out of it, and put us in a ground that will get us into more idolatry. And I've begun to realize that as a church, and I don't mean just our church, but the church of Jesus Christ, God is preparing us for a future in which the whole basis of morality a basis of ethics, a basis of, of, uh, of, uh, of distribution of, of uh, resources is based upon this, a certain thing that we call freedom, but that freedom is to, to, to name ourselves without regard to God. I don't believe that that's freedom. I don't believe this is even new. I believe that we saw this in the French Revolution. We saw that even among the Greeks, the Romans. This is ancient. This is classical. It's human nature for us to want freedom. But in our cry for freedom, we define freedom differently. It's an idolatrous freedom, the freedom to be able to have what we want, to choose our own way of avoiding shame and avoiding 
um, um, deprivation. So I, I just want to put this to you in this way. And so into this, Isaiah is speaking. He's speaking to Hezekiah and says, look, you want to get out of the, the yoke of bondage from Assyria, but this deprivation that you're having is not actually going to take you into real freedom. It takes you into idolatry. It takes you through the Negev. It takes you into greater burdens because of the idols that will be upon yourself. So Isaiah 46, Isaiah um, 30, Isaiah 31, Isaiah 10, Isaiah um, um, 33. They're all about that. All about that means of gain being free, whether it's economic freedom or it's a, a, a personal freedom. It's all about an alternate means of being free through idols. Through idols. They have a, a, a superficial covering of gold and silver. There's something, something genuine about it. But under, un, in, inside the substance of these idols, it's just wood. It's just metal. And what I want to say, put it to, to put to you is this. As we look towards the future, as we think about our children as, uh, going on, the, our children being exposed to a, an, a, a, a taken-for-granted understanding that freedom is the freedom to be autonomous to such an extent that anything that, that, that stands against or stands in the way of this autonomy, like religion, like Christianity, or discipleship, has become something that is oppressive. And you and I will have to face the days ahead in which children will go to school and will be considered immoral on that basis. Because the house of, moral, of morality that's been given by God from, from externally, from outside of ourselves, has been torn down and what's happening is that we build up another house that in which we construct our morality, our system of morality by ourselves. And in doing so, like all the soldiers and all the king's men, we try to build up Humpty Dumpty after he has fallen on, from, the, from the wall. And we de develop our own kind of criteria for morals. The debate today in, 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 in schools is not about philosophy. That's long gone. The, the, the debate now is about morality. What's right and what's wrong? Okay? I just want to leave this with you. I just feel that because of, I feel a tremendous burden for the next generation. I, I feel that what the Lord is doing is this. He's preparing us not for normal times. Not for times to be as they were before. I'm not even sure that as they were before is even good. But I know one thing. That God begins by judging His people before He judges Assyria. He judges His people before He judges Egypt. He judges His people first. And if judgment comes in the house of the Lord first, then it will be a salvation for us. And what He's saying is this. It's not enough for you to rely on, all, on idols that that look like they are, they are spiritual or look like they are, they are Christian or look that they are, they are religious. But, 
and actually even have a little bit of gold, have even a little bit of silver, but it's, it's not at the raw root of this. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm intrigued always that when Zephi was uh, um, getting into Princeton, um, you know, she got the news that she was the top recruit, NCAA recruit for the 200 butterfly and uh, the 11th ranked recruit in the nation. Very, very, I was so proud of her. It's like, wow. Talk about a surprise that, that was my surprise. Then she went into Princeton freshman. She went into, into Princeton freshman as a freshman. She started her training with, with the swim team and all that. And while we were in France, she started texting us and calling us with very disturbing news. The disturbing news is that she felt that God was leading her out of the swim team to stop swimming and to be a, a maker of disciples. She had this word. And the disciples left their nets to follow Jesus. I'm thinking, do you know how much has gone into you becoming an, an NCAA swimmer and all that? But we never said that to her. Because we sense that there is someone bigger, more important than all the accolades that she received. I said, pray about it. Just pray about it. I remember Sydney and I praying, talking to her again and again. Pray about it. And the more and more she shared about it, the more and more she felt convicted about it. And says, said, every day in my devotion, I'm getting worse. Quit. Quit swimming. I cannot imagine what she was facing, just the prospect of having been, you know, articles had been written in, in the swimming world and all, an article that, 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 that regarded her, speaking about her as like a, a great, a great find or something. And now everything was going to be kind of put aside. But it became very clear to us that God was telling her, move. And she quit. Almost immediately after that, COVID started. And there was no swimming for the next year and a half. Even now, it's not quite normal. But what happened is, more recently is that with this sense of us self-identifying, I'm sure many of you have read about it or heard about it, uh, a particular swimmer who was, a, who was on the UPenn men's swimming team for three years, who swam competitively in NCAA for three years, underwent a sex change, or is undergoing a, a sex change, and, became, and, and moved on to the, the female side. And he is winning every competition, every single, by a long way. It's making women's swimming completely seem ridiculous. He wins by 38 seconds. Everything he swims, she swims, is way, way faster than anyone else. Nobody can, fight, can, can, can beat her. So I suppose that Zephi heard from the Lord. 
But what I'm saying is that there's a way in which when there is no absolutes undergirding our freedom, what we have is idolatry. Now, what idolatry does is that it actually makes us emptied of spiritual substance. Yeah? And so what it says, it says here in, uh, in uh, Isaiah chapter 30, Even Egypt whose help is vain and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab who has been exterminated. I will put it to you that actually idols, idols are not just passive bits of wood and iron. They are, they are emptying out agents. They empty us out. We can tend to think of emptiness as the absence of something, right? You think it's, this cup is empty, that means it, is, it doesn't have any water in it. It is empty. It, is, it, is, it has an absence of water. Yeah? May I suggest to you that actually when Isaiah chapter 30 talks about emptiness and, I, and Psalm 135 says, you become like them, not able to see, not able to hear, not able to speak, not able to breathe. You are filled with a thing called emptiness. May I suggest to you that emptiness is not an absence of substance. It is the, the presence of something. It is the presence of something idolatrous that will eat up substance. It will eat up hearing. It will eat up seeing. It will eat up breathing. It will eat up life. And so when Psalm 135 talks about idols as, as things that make you like them, make you like them, he's saying idols will empty you out. They are filled with emptiness, and I would put it to you that this emptiness that it is, is not an absence of material, it is the presence of something that takes away substance. It destroys substance. It actually eats up substance to such an extent it makes you completely um, uh, bereft of any glory, any of the glory of God. And so what was happening with the, the nation of Israel is that Israel was being emptied of substance. They, they were experiencing the burden of emptiness. Have you ever experienced emptiness as a burden? Have you experienced after you've gone, for, gone, you've worked really hard for something and you got that thing and you succeeded, you come back and you feel empty. I've spoken to many people who have experienced Christmas as a, as a, as a, as a big letdown. After they got all the presents and all the, the fun that they, they were hoping for, they found they had nothing left. They felt depressed. I would put it to you that emptiness is a depression. It is the absence of something you know you should have. Emptiness is a positive thing. I don't mean positive in a good thing as in the sense, but it's a something that, is, that can be positive. Emptiness is something that is, is burdensome. It's heavy. It has stuff in it. And its stuff is idolatrous, demonic, and bad for you. And that is why Christianity that is into God doing stuff for your own agenda that's idolatrous is empty. But it's not neutral. It is filled with 
stuff that's going to eat you up. And I feel that as God is preparing us for Easter and He's preparing us for the days ahead, God is actually wanting to cause us to be filled with real substance and not just emptiness. Idols will make you empty. When we base our desire in life for, for God or for other things upon things that we want before that, that we will not have privation, we will not have oppression, we will actually end up going to Egypt, we'll be going through methods to, to escape those things without going to God. And so let's go quickly into part of the solution that God has for us. He says, in repentance and rest, verse um, 25, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. The first thing that I want uh, to, to, to put it to you is this. It says, in repentance, that means changing direction, right? Changing of mind, changing of right. And rest, you will be saved. What it means is this, that there is a, there is a hurried and hasty and... Um, an oppressive way in which idols press you along. You're always not having enough time. And every time I, I feel that I'm hasty or, I, or things, I'm, I'm getting anxious because of lack of time, I know there's some idols lurking in there somewhere. You know what? Not having, being hasty about that, about things, does to me, it makes everything I do empty of value. One of the things that I have going for me when I'm preaching is I have somebody sitting in the front. I won't tell you who. And she's always able to tell me, you're going too fast. And so sometimes you will see my eyes just alight upon someone, you won't say who, who's going. Because she knows that when I get hasty, I am emptied of power, of word, of substance when I speak. Does that make sense? That's just a way of, of saying something that's larger, I'm sure. That when we say we are wanting our own way, we will, we will do our religion just like it's an idol. When we want acceptance, we empty ourselves of the weight of God's glory just because we don't want to be rejected. And I believe that as we Raise up, raise up our children. We have to raise up children who have someone who's there, who loves them so abundantly that they're not afraid of rejection. Because the emptiness of it will make them be people pleasers. The emptiness of it will cause them to keep on being aware of shame, aware of how people are looking at them, how people are, uh, 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 are reacting to them, and that will empty them of their authenticity, of their God, the Godness. How am I going to raise up my children in such a way that the, the, the presence and the gravity of God's love in them and His word in them is so great that they don't care what people think of them? The lack of it is called emptiness. And emptiness can come when we raise up our children to be running after the idols of this world. 
or we reject them or make our love for them conditional. Yeah? I feel that this is, a, this is an important thing for us because God doesn't want to fill us with nothing. He wants to fill us with something of Him. Yeah? And so, He says, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. Repentance makes us change direction and sensitive to the fact that I'm being pushed by these idols and pushed in a certain direction. He says, repentance and rest. Now, rest, it's very interesting because rest takes effort. In Hebrews, it tells us, let us now labor to enter into the rest. Right? Labor to enter into the rest. It's almost as if the inertia of idolatry and our own insecurities is pressing upon us and making us go backwards in life. We think we're going forward, of course, but we're actually going backwards. And to rest means to take our stand there and say, I'm not moving. I'm not moving in your direction. And I understand in resting means I'm going to take the risk of being not accepted. I'm going to take the risk of losing out in the eyes of the world. I'm going to take the risk of not having more time for entertainment or for, for myself so that I can spend time with you. Lord. To actually rest means to be waiting upon God and it's especially waiting on God when He does not seem to be coming. It says, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. And I realize that rest is an effort. It's a, I labor to enter into that rest because when I do that, I take my stand, I'm feeling the forces of all that are coming against me. All the fear that if I don't move, shame will come upon me and I will be reproached. The fear that if I don't fall in line with what everybody else is saying, I will actually not have any status in the world. And I have to raise up my children to be able to, to know that there is a God who is so so infinitely dense and so, so, so infinitely full of gravitas that I can stand upon him and I can lean on him. I have to, I have to understand that. Now, for this, I've got to say, artists and people who are sensitive have, the, have a great burden. Because those who are sensitive are aware of what people are thinking and what the tone and the tenor of the world is. Okay? Artists have that. People who are creative, people who are sensitive, have a great burden. It's not easy for them. People who are nuanced in culture, it's not easy for them. Because they know what people are thinking. They know what's out there. They have a special sensitivity, a sense to what's going on in people's mind. And for them, they have to bear the burden of knowing that whatever they say or whatever they do, there will be these criticisms, these cultural criticisms, what, um, what um, Schleiermacher calls the culture despisers. Okay? There will be culture despisers who will despise anything that they do, especially if they stand up for God. True. I have sympathy for artists, you know, because they, they know better than anyone else what the dismissive people are thinking of you. Some people don't care. They don't care. They can be very bold and they can be very shameless. But they are not artists. They're just insensitive. 
And they are great evangelists, you know. Because they don't know people are making fun of them. They don't know all the, the culture despisings, all the subtle kind of, <laughs> the superciliousness. They meet somebody, you're talking to them superciliously, and they say, oh, that person really likes me. I know somebody who first came, who came to America who, who, who was a bit like that. Oh, he's bold. He's so bold. But he did not know American culture to such an extent that when he came and he shared and taught, he said to me when he came back to Malaysia, he said, you know what? They all think I'm awesome. They think I'm awesome. Wow. I asked him, were you awesome? I don't know. I was just preaching. But they thought I was awesome. So sometimes people like that, they have an easier time, you know, because they're not that sensi sensitive to the, the subtleties that are going on. And sometimes I envy such people because they, they don't know what they're coming up against. Whereas the people who are, you know, more sophisticated, more educated, more whatever it is, more sensitive, more artistic, or whatever, they know what's going on. And they, in spite of that, have to make a stand to rest in God. So for them to rest is to be able to say, having known all this, having sensed all this, I am going to be shameless. I'm going to let not, none of that plug into my shame. I need to be delivered from shame. It is not enough for me to say the Bible says there's no more condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. There's no more shame. I'm as good as the other. I'm made in the image of God. All that kind of stuff. It's one thing to say that. And because of that, God accepts me for everything, for my shape, my sexuality, for everything. It's one thing to know that God accepts us. That doesn't move shame. Shame has to happen when you take a stand, we repent, we take a stand and we say, no, I'm going to stand on the side of God because only God has any substance. Everything else is emptiness. And, sh and, and, and the, whatever that chemical is that fights shame is going to be brought up and, and raised up in me as I make my stand here and God, but the Holy Spirit, pours into me shamelessness. Does that make sense? Now, I have a daughter. I won't tell you who. But she is so sensitive to people. She's wonderful. And the, one of the things is that she's sensitive to how people feel. She knows the subtle things that are there. And because of that, she veers on the, on the side of self-deference. Yeah? Just deferring, deferring to others. And she sat for an exam. And in that exam, exam, somehow the school allows people to do that exam on an honor system and people are allowed to cheat. And, they, and she knew they are going to be cheating because they talk openly about cheating. And, uh, and she said, I can't. I can't cheat. I just can't. And I'll be at a decided disadvantage. She sat for the paper. And she got less marks than she, she felt that she should get. But knowing her, she would never complain. She would never tell anybody. She would just suck it up. But she heard last week's sermon about shamelessness. 
And she says, okay, I'm going to go. And I'll take my face. I'm going to just bang into the ground. Okay. And she went, and she got nine points back. Praise God for that. I'm so happy as a dad. But the thing I want to say is this. Shamelessness comes when we, when we make a stand. Not by saying, oh, I'm no shame. The Bible is on my side. God accepts me. And all that. That's all good, by the way. But that's not enough. Amen. Amen. And I, and I want to put it to you that each one of us are called to preach the gospel and to step out. And you have to be shameless in that. Shameless is not the absence of shame only. It is the presence of God in repenting and rest will be our strength. Amen. God bless you. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this day that indeed you have set us free from shame. Indeed, you've made us in, the, in, in your own image. And indeed, you value, value us more than we can even ever know. But we ask you that even now that you, in these days, where it's not going to be easy for the church, it's going to be very difficult. You, by your grace, will empower us and raise us up and make us a people not of idols, but of rest. And so we welcome the rest that you give to us away from the oppressive need to please people or to follow the, the, the pace of the world. And so we welcome you to come. In the name of Jesus, we welcome you present to fix us in the present right now. In the name of Jesus. I want to invite you to, if there's anything that's been pulling you by anxiety or by fear, stop it right there and invite the Holy Spirit to plant your feet in Him. In the name of Jesus.